Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. So I just want to take, before we even get into this book at all, per usual, I want to take a minute to recap the different books that we've studied so far. So we started with Obadiah. Obadiah was written to whom? The Edomites. The Edomites. And who are the Edomites? Descendants of Esau. And what did the Edomites do to incur God's judgment? Kicked them, yeah, kicked them all there down. Yeah, that's. They, yeah, they jeered. Yeah, they were. They were really not always the primary aggressor, but they were the ones who were mocking them, taking advantage of them when they were when they were beat. So, uh, yeah, that was rather than treating them like really their brother, because they were both descended from Abraham. So then we did Obadiah, then we did Jonah, a more familiar story for many of us, maybe who have grown up in the church hearing about Jonah in the you know the giant fish. But what did uh, what, who was the prophecy of Jonah to? Nineveh. Nineveh. And uh, I guess it was the first of the prophecies that we saw in Nineveh, and we saw Nineveh repent. We saw Nineveh actually heed the warning, and through that we just see God's mercy and his ability or his willingness to, to forgive and to pardon judgment when there's repentance. So they, then we did Micah. Micah was written to whom? Judah and Israel. Judah and Israel. And... Does anybody remember, kind of like recap, what the big themes were in Micah? God's mercy. God's mercy, yeah. That's kind of, kind of how I've been describing it is Israel's rebellion and God's mercy. Because you see a lot of the, you know, the rebellion of Judah and Israel. And then you see his mercy. You see the Messiah. There's a lot of good messianic prophecy in there. A lot of seeing his mercy. So... That's the longest book that we studied. And then Nahum, which was to whom? Nineveh once again. And what was the gist of the book in Nahum? Destruction. Destruction, yeah. It was the final judgment. So Jonah came before, remember? Jonah preached repentance. They repented. or uh, He preached judgment. They repented. And then about 100, 120 years later, they had fallen back into their original ways of violence. And yeah, God judged them. And then, does anybody remember what we studied last week with Habakkuk? How is this book broken up? What was... Uh, a series of complaints. Yeah, that, so that's how I think of it. A series of complaints. Or, or really a conversation between Habakkuk and God, where Habakkuk is saying, Oh God, why are you acting like this? Uh, why are you allowing the wicked to prosper in this way? And, and it's really a conversation of complaints of injustice that Habakkuk sees. And now we get to Zephaniah. And I, I'm glad this is the last book of the module that we're studying, because I, I think that a lot of the themes that we've seen really just come to like a, a beautiful culmination. We're going to read a passage at the end of this lesson. This really is probably my single favorite passage out of all the books that we've studied. And just such a great picture, again, of God's mercy. Really a culmination of a lot of things we've, we've talked about. But uh, I want to talk for a minute about this idea of God being a jealous God. So when we read the law of God, a lot of times in Scripture it talks about 
loving the law of God. You learn, you see King David and it's always, I love your law, O Lord. There's, you read Deuteronomy 6 and it's just like, speak God's law all the time. Tell your kids about God's law. Love God's law. And one of the things that, the, one of the reasons why the law of God is so important is because the law of God teaches us about God's character. So you see something like, do not murder. And you, and you realize, oh, God loves life. You see, do not lie. And you see, okay, God loves truth. So you learn about God. And a lot of the other laws too, all throughout, you know, not even the Ten Commandments, but the entirety of the law, you just, we learn about God's character. And one of the things that is very prevalent as we read the law is you see this theme of God being a jealous God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. This is from Exodus, from the Ten Commandments. Or the likeness of what's in heaven above, or the earth beneath, or the water under the earth. You shall not worship or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is fundamental to his dealing with his people. I think a lot of times when we hear jealousy, we think, oh, sinful. Jealousy is wrong, right? Uh, we might be jealous of something that somebody else owns. Like, oh man, I'm really jealous of that guy's house or that guy's Tesla, whatever it is. Or as we think of like, you know, in a relationship, somebody who's jealous, uh, you know, of their spouse in a sinful way, it's like there's, there can be distrust there where they're not trusting the spouse. But there is a righteous jealousy. And this is the type of jealousy that God is jealous for. Um, or we think, you know, there's a right, even for humans, there's a righteous jealousy. We should be jealous of our spouses. We shouldn't want our, our husband or wife to be hanging out with, you know, another, another man, or another woman all the time. Like, it's, this is appropriate. We've made a commitment to each other. But God's jealousy is more along those lines. What, what would you guys say if you think of God's jealousy? What is God jealous for or jealous of? The worship, okay. So the worship of his people, the, I would say even the worship of all people, you know, when we think of it, but yeah, it's the, the worship of, or the worship, the devotion, the commitment. Um, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. God has, it, it's really almost like a, he's the maker of all people. So all people owe him this act of dedication, of worship. And uh, we see a lot of times when people fail to worship God, they incur his, his jealousy, his jealous wrath. So Zephaniah, I would say, is a book about God's jealousy, God's demand for loyalty. He, want, he doesn't want people to be going and making up all these other gods and giving them the praise for his creation. This is not sinful. This is something that God deserves because of his being, because of his character, because of the fact that he created everything. So um, I would say that, you know, just as we read the, read the passages, kind of be, be understanding that like this, uh, a lot of these passages that we read are wrath that we see because of God being a jealous God and going back to like desiring the affection and worship of his people. And then, like I said at the end, it just ends at this amazing high note, seeing his, his redemption and his mercy once again. So, 
for today's lesson, per usual, we'll kind of break it into these different sections. We'll talk about the historical context of the book. We'll talk about the outline, look at some different passages, then we're going to bring it to a conversation about Christ and his church. And finally, what we can take away. So, as far as the historical setting, it's interesting. We're given a genealogy for Zephaniah. The word of, and this is the only of the minor prophets that has a genealogy like this. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. All right, so what do we learn about, about Zephaniah here? Yeah, this is King Hezekiah. So, Zephaniah is part of royal blood. He's part of uh, his great-great-grandfather, King Hezekiah. So this would have given him first-hand experience of the leadership of, of Judah and seeing probably, you know, he would have been in the court. He would have known the people. He would have ha had probably conversations or interactions with the, the leaders, the actual kings and princes. Um, so, you know, that's just, he has a little bit of inside knowledge for that. And then Zephaniah means hidden by Jehovah. As far as when we're, uh, he's prophesying, so we say, or we see in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So was Josiah good or bad? Good, yeah. He was about as good as it gets. Uh, anybody remember or have like some detail to remember about Josiah, what he, what he did or what made his reign good? AJ? Oh. I don't know. I was going to say, I just always think that he was like eight when he was king. Okay, yeah. So that's a good point. Josiah, and this is actually interesting. Josiah took over the kingship when he was, when he was young. It might have been eight. Yeah, I think it might have. Something, something like that, very young. And there's a lot of people, now this is not canon, this is not in scripture, but there's a lot of people who actually believe that Zephaniah was instrumental in helping. So Josiah started out young, and then when he got to be about 20 or 21, that's when he kind of came in and executed a ton of reforms for worshiping God and established the worship of God in you know, very biblical ways. <laughs> A lot of people think that Zephaniah was involved, same as the, uh, the priests were at that time, with, with coaching him and instructing him. So again, we're not told that, but I think a lot of people believe that he was at least involved with that. Um, so as far as the timeline of this, Zephaniah is prophesying about the destruction of uh, of Nineveh, which is going to be happening about the destruction of Jerusalem. But that kind of starts around here. So when Jerusalem was destroyed, if you'll recall, I'll flip ahead here. Remember, there's two kingdoms, right? They split, split apart after Rehoboam. The kingdom of Israel, the ones that said, hey, we don't need King David. We're going to make, you know, make our own king. They set up camp in Samaria as their capital. They had already fallen. To which country? Assyria, yep, with Nineveh. So they had already fallen. By the time Zephaniah came along, Jerusalem had not yet, uh, but he is called one of the 11th hour prophets. 
actually similar to Habakkuk because it's right up, you know, right toward the end, right before they fall. But even the fact that there are these 11th hour prophets, God is being merciful. God is giving the people of Israel lots of time to repent. Uh, they have these messages, these warnings over and over to repent right up until the fall. So as far as going back to this slide, uh, we believe that he was in Jerusalem prophesying. So let's talk about the outline of the book. So it starts off, and we'll, again, we'll read some excerpts. Talk, starts off talking about the day of the Lord, and then it turns and talks to surrounding nations, which I think is really pretty interesting. Other books do the same thing, like Isaiah. It, you know, you read the book of Isaiah, and it starts off with the prophecies for Israel, and it turns gears and switches gears and talks to the surrounding nations. Um, judgment against Jerusalem, and then finally this, this great message of restoration. So, the day of the Lord is at hand. That's kind of the, the theme of this first section. This entire first chapter is essentially a scathing judgment. Uh, right off the bat, comes in like with just poof, really severe sounding judgment. Does someone nice and loud want to read this, this passage from, is the first few, book, first few verses of the book. Thanks, Mike. All right. So this, I mean, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth. This reminds me of the flood, right? Like this is, this is a complete destruction. This is not even just targeted toward one particular nation. This is indiscriminate. Except the fish are going to get wiped out this time. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> ben said, except the fish are going to get wiped out this, point, this time too. Yeah, it's, there's this idea of the day of the Lord, which we'll talk about more later, but it's a day of judgment. And this first section actually has that phrase, the day of the Lord, seven times as, as it, um, as it as we, if we were to read through the whole thing, we would see that. So on the, on the day of the Lord, what we see is all people, including his people, Judah, have failed to give him the worship that he deserves. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. This is not up here, but this is also just an excerpt from chapter one. In the fire of his jealousy, he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one. So again, we see that the, this fire, this burning uh, reason, the impetus behind this day of the Lord is God's jealousy. All right. Does someone want to read this section? This is kind of a continuation. AJ? So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven, and those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, and those who have turned back following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Great. So here we see it really kind of focusing in on Jerusalem. That first part about destroying all earth, all the earth that was very broad. Now he, he's calling out their idolatry 
against Jerusalem, Jerusalem specifically. So Jerusalem, that was, that was the capital of Judah. That was where the, it should have been the center of worship of God. But instead, we see that there's the remnant of Baal. Anybody know what Baal is or who Baal is? Yeah, one of the Canaanite gods that was, you know, worshipped all the time. And again, you see there's people who are bowing down and swearing to the Lord, and yet swearing by Milcom. Milcom, same thing, another Canaanite god. So this is just such a great a view that like, okay, the people in Jerusalem even, on one hand they're saying, oh, we worship God, but with the rest of, the, of their lives, they're pursuing all these other gods as well. And this is... You know, this should be a warning to us that we can say, we can say, we can be just like them. We can say, oh yeah, I worship God. Like they were doing that, right? They were bowing down and swearing by the Lord on one hand, but then chasing off these other things on another hand. So just because we're saying, oh, you know, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I take the name of God, I, you know, I believe in Jesus, that doesn't mean that we're not also chasing after all these idols. And then this is the verse I read earlier about the fire of his jealousy. All right, so after this focus on Jerusalem and the sin there and the idolatry there, he switches gears. So we got five, five little excerpts I want to read through uh, just to see the different nations he's calling out. So does someone want to read this verse here? Good. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron. Do, do these cities sound familiar to anybody? Excuse me. Philistines, yeah. There was five cities of the Philistines. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and then Gath was the other one where Goliath was from. Philistines were kind of the quintessential bad guys for the Canaanites, right? Like, whenever you think of uh, Goliath, this enemy of who David fights, right? The giant, he was the Philistine. The Philistine armies were just always waging war against the Israelites. So God is saying, you're going to be destroyed. All right. Someone want to read this passage? Good. Thank you. So Moab, is, uh, if you've read the Old Testament, you might recognize that name. Does anybody remember who Moab is, for, or, or I guess anything about that country, the nation, Moab? Descendant of Lot. Yeah, it was a descendant of Lot. Any famous Moabite, Moabites or Moabitesses? Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, yeah. There was... So this was another Canaanite nation. In Deuteronomy, it says, No Ammonite, Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Those are both descendants of Lot. And none of their descendants, because they did not meet you with food or water when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired Balaam to curse you. So they were, you know, they were kind of enemies, acting as enemies against Israel as well. But nearby nations. So these two ones that we just looked at were Israel's neighbors the ones who they kind of would have just been interacting with as a function of being in that, that part of the land. 
So it's interesting because now he talks about a few other <laughs> nations. I'll just read this, it's short enough. You also, O Ethiopians, will be slain by my sword. So Ethiopia, that's a North African nation. It's not like an immediate neighbor <laughs> to, to Israel. And then finally, I'll read this one as well. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. We've heard destruction of Nineveh before, right? That was very much in line with Nahum. So, you know, what we learn about this is God does not just care about his people. God is not just ruler over, over the church. God is a ruler over all the earth. We read not just the book, not just these passages, but all throughout the prophets. Like I said, you know, Isaiah is full of it. The other, you know, half the books we read in this module, Nahum, Jonah, you know, Obadiah, like these are, half the books are to other nations, people other than just Israel. So we realize that this, this obligation that there is to worship God extends to all people. And God is, uh, you know, he's, he's the creator. And I think another implication is that God obviously cares about what these other nations are doing. Enough to put it in his scriptures. I think we should care about what's going on. Sometimes Christians have this tendency to just, you know, I would say almost crawl into a hole. Say, okay, I don't need to care, I don't need to care about what's happening outside the walls of, of the church or the walls of my home. You know, where I'm just going to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back. And, you know, whatever else is going on outside, like, I'm not going to give it a second thought. But God gives it a second thought, right? He's, he's sending prophet after prophet to talk about what's going on in these other nations. So, you know, as far as, like, our responsibility to be, to be spreading the gospel or even just caring about what's going on around us, I think it's a, a very biblical idea. All right, so we're going to keep rolling here and talk about this judgment against Jerusalem. And as we hear this one, Rad, just be, think to yourself, like, who is the target? Who's the main people, the main audience, or the specific people that are being uh, prophesied to? So does someone want to read this one nice and loud? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. You know, this is Jerusalem. How far removed this idea of being rebellious and defiled. That's such a far cry from the reign, you know, where King David is like, Jerusalem is the center of God's worship. So there has been a great apostasy here. So who, who's the main target of this? Yeah, the princes, right? <laughs> princes and judges. The leaders. So, it's interesting. He, he, we talked about Josiah, right? He kind of reigned, or prophesied during the reign of Josiah. When you had a good king who was committed to the Lord come along, the people followed. 
when Manasseh, who is Josiah's great-grandpa, I think, Hezekiah's kid, you know, he came in, he was wicked as it gets. And you saw the entire nation following that way. And then Josiah comes along, makes these reforms, and there's a swing in the opposite direction, which unfortunately didn't continue beyond Josiah because he had other leaders that came in and, and went back the opposite way. But princes and the judges, you know, the civil magistrate. And there's other verses that are not up here about the prophets too. Again, the leaders, we see how important this idea of and what a weight it is to be a, a spiritual leader. So for all of us, you know, we all lead in some way or another. There are people looking to us. And especially those of us, if you have children, like God expects more from the people who are leading his flock. And that's a, you know, it's a little scary. It's not something to be taken lightly. So as we think about, you know, wow, just think of how much sway King Josiah or King, you know, one of the other bad kings had to like, sway the hearts of the people. That's the power that God's given us to sway the hearts of, of our family. And it's a, it is a power. It's something we need to use in the right direction to call them to follow God. All right. So now we get to this last section. And again, I'm, I'm very glad we get to end this module on this passage because it's, it's such a great recap, or not recap, just such a great example of all the different themes that we've been talking about throughout the books that we've studied. You see God's redemption, you know, the ideas of the remnants, it's just very evident here. So I'll go ahead and, and read this. It's a little longer, but just, just listen to this. Listen to what a comfort and what a joy this passage is. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear, fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. We sing a song, actually, the quietest with your love that we sing. That's from this passage. This is the message that we have if we believe in Jesus. This is God speaking to us. Remember we've talked about that, how the, the passages in the Old Testament are to God's people that we're a part of. So we read this and we don't just think, oh, this is a message of hope that God is giving to this group of people to, you know, 2,500 years ago. This is, this is for you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will gather you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, 
I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And praise God that God is that merciful to his people. And you see, remember the passages that came right before this, God is condemning Jerusalem. He's saying, Jerusalem, you're going to be wiped out. You're going to be wiped out because of your rebellion. All of us deserve to be wiped out because of our rebellion. All of us. Whether we have been calling ourselves Christians for 25 years, or if we still don't even know who Jesus is, all of us deserve, because of our failure to, to be worshiping God and honoring Him and obeying, we deserve to be destroyed. But then God is promising, okay, even though there's a destruction, even though there's a punishment, I'm going to take my people and I'm going to restore their fortunes. I'm going to gather them in. I'm going to you know, save the lame and gather the outcast. This is us. We're the lame and outcast. We're the ones who don't, you know, we, we have nothing good in and of ourselves. So I, I love this passage. I, you know, just this idea, I'm flipped back one slide, that, of God, God rejoicing over us, exalting over us with joy and being quiet in his love. This is how God treats us. All right, well, let's, Let's talk about this idea of, of Christ in the church. Because I think, you know, the, the passage we just read, that is, that is the gospel. Jesus is the one who is quiet in his love. He, it says in Isaiah, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick will not extinguish. Jesus is gentle to us. He knows what we need. He knows our weakness. And even though we are weak, he, he saves us. He lifts us up. So... Within this, this section, with Christ in the church, there's a few, uh, a few different points I want to talk through. First of all, it has to do with this day of the Lord that we talked about. All in all in the book, it actually mentions the day of the Lord 20 different times. Why is it called the day of the Lord? What, what do you guys think? Any ideas about why it's called the day of the Lord? The day he's going to judge and destroy everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... It's a day of judgment, day of vindication. When we think of like the current era right now, Satan is, is at large. He's the, it calls him the prince of the power of the air. He still is at work among the sons of disobedience. Satan is out there. Satan has you know, real power still. There's still sin out there. People are still dying. The day of the Lord is... Yeah, this, this judgment where God's way is finally established. There's no other, you know, no other oppressor, no other enemy. Uh, and when we read about the day of the Lord, especially in prophecies in the Old Testament like this, a lot of it is messianic. Messianic meaning the coming of the Messiah, about, about Jesus. So some of the times when we read something that says the day of the Lord, it's already been fulfilled in the coming of, of Jesus Christ, his first coming. So with Jesus, there's two, <laughs> two comings. He came one time, this one we know about, or that we've learned about in the Gospels, but he's coming again to return to judge. And that's the day of the Lord that has not yet been fulfilled. Does anybody remember that already not yet concept that we talked about? So someone I kind of like briefly recap that or what, what that concept is? In the prophets, there's, there's this 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all great examples uh, of ways where we've already, we're kind of in this in between where we've received some of the promises and seen some of the fulfillment, but then there's more to come. So yeah, that sanctification thing where we're righteous already in God's sight, but we're not fully righteous because we still sin or we have these, you know, for, so for this passage, I think some people, when they read prophecy, will get hung up on trying to like explain, explain or understand, oh, I know exactly what this prophecy means. This was fulfilled, you know, in this. Um, you know, when you see, in, even in, throughout Zephaniah, the day of the Lord, when it talks about that, sometimes it's referring to the, the Babylonian captivity. That already happened. Some instances it's, taken, or it's talking about <laughs> the restoring the captivity. Well, that already happened in a way, you know, with, when they restored the captivity. And then sometimes it's talking about the coming of the Messiah and sometimes it's the first coming. And then sometimes it's talking about the second. We don't necessarily, in order to understand what God is telling us and wants us to learn and to apply, we don't have to claim to understand and unwind every single biblical prophecy. Some of it is mysterious. Some of it we don't know how it's going to unfold exactly. But What's important is that we understand that God has fulfilled his word when he's made good or on, you know, on the prophecies he's had in his past, in the past. And God is going to fulfill his word on the prophecies of final judgment. Like we need to hang our hats and build our lives on the fact that Jesus is coming back and that he is going to establish his reign here on earth you know, here on earth and that we will be victorious. Like we know that is coming and that one day we'll see his final full redemption. All right. So this idea of the remnant, which it talks about in chapter three, once again, this remnant has kind of been a constant theme throughout all, all the book. Well, not all the books, almost all the books we've looked at. This remnant is the idea, the, uh, the leftovers is another way you can think of, I don't remember who said that first, but God had this judgment against his people. We saw that, we, that was the Babylonian captivity. That's exactly what happened. God judged his people, but he didn't fully destroy them. He left a little sliver, a little bit left, a little remnant. But that remnant he took and made more glorious than the original, the original one ever was. So who's the remnant? God's children. Us. Us. We, the church today, is the remnant. Andrea? The people of Israel, Jewish right? Of Israel, they have been cut off so that we Gentiles all over the earth might be brought in, and then His remnants, the faithful few that He will restore, will be 
Right. And it's a message, yeah, in the Romans passage, it's a message of, of warning to us who were grafted in because he said, well, if even the original one could be cut off, how much more the part that was grafted in and not part, part of the original kingdom. So, you know, there's this, I love that, pa yeah, that passage. I love the idea of this grafting in. When you think of like a tree or an apple tree or something that you, you graft in, you can cut a, a slice in the tree and stick in a new branch and that branch will actually become part of the original tree. That is us. That's what, you know, the Gentiles being grafted in, that's the, the image, that's the um, picture that God uses to describe us today who were not part of the original uh, biological descendants of Abraham. But because of this grafting in, we have become as legitimate and as a truly a part of that tree as as the original and that's you know that's why like this is so encouraging that we we partake in all these promises yes yeah i totally agree there talks about the the actual people of israel being you know restored as well but we have this to look forward to that all these passages of the remnant that we've looked at where God is saving it and going to establish it one day and is going to be glorious and we're going to be in heaven with him. You know, that's all, these are all promises that we can apply to ourselves as part of, part of the church. And finally, Jesus takes our shame. Shame is not a bad thing. Shame is a gift from God that God can use when, we, when he reveals our own sin to us. It should make us feel shame, feel ashamed. Shame is a tool that God uses to drive us to him. But Jesus will remove it. In that day, you will feel no shame, it says. This is very similar to what we see in First John, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. Jesus, we should be ashamed because of our rebellion, because of all our sin. But Jesus takes our shame away so that we don't need to be ashamed anymore. We can be free to live in him. We don't need to live in the guilt of our past sins. We all have that. We have things that we regret, that we look back and we like, it weighs on us. Things we've done, things we've said, like, it's, we're shameful. <laughs> but just like this passage that we looked at, with God taking their shame, Jesus takes our shame. So that we can actually approach him and say, you know what? I've done shameful things, but because of the work of Christ, I don't need to be burdened by that anymore. And that's such a gift. You know, that we have that blessing here in this life before, you know, before we even reach eternity. All right. You know, so finally, I, we've talked about this a lot, this warning, warning to leaders. <laughs> we see it again. It's a theme in Scripture. We're leaders. We need to be taking seriously this idea that people are looking to us, that our children will imitate the things we do. And that's even more of a reason to be following God. And finally, 
trust in God, he will do it. I'm going to put a verse up again from chapter 3, and I'm going to have in bold all the things where God is the one acting. With all of this, what we need to understand, this story of redemption, this story of God you know, punishing the remnant, restoring the remnant, making his people glorious. It is all a story about God and his power and his might and his goodness. And none of it is a story about, oh, the Israelites were just such a great people to begin with that, you know, this is all because of, because of them. God was the one doing all the work. So this is, we read this earlier, but this is, again, just focus on this. I will gather those who grieve from the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The repose of the exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise. I will bring you in. This is God. This is not saying, oh, you're going to do this in your own strength. I will do it. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. God is the one who does it. God is the one who blesses his people, who takes that remnant and establishes in and of ourselves, we are nothing. And this, I mean, this is the theme. This is the theme that we saw in the Minor Prophets. This is the theme that we see throughout all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is unwaveringly committed to the good of his people. Despite the people's sin, despite their flaws, if we believe in Jesus and are part of God's people, he just has all these good things in store for us because, not because of us, but because he is such a good God. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.